my foot got trapped in it, and then I did like a backflip off of it and broke my foot. I think we were feeding our birds one time, and they never knew what the cave was haunted. But I found it and tried to give it to her, but she said no. It's time for the Apple Seat, an hour in which we bring you stories of all sorts for you and your family. Tall tales, fairy tales, folk tales, personal and family stories, and more. And we always hope that the stories we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people you love. That kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. I'm Sam Payne, your host, and we got a lot of great stuff for you today. And I gotta say, the story at the heart of today's episode is a terrifically fun story told for you by the West Virginia tall tale teller, Bill Lepp. He visited us in the Appleseed studio to share a story for anyone who has ever ridden a bike down a big hill. And who hasn't done that, right? And the goal was to pedal the entire way down, to be in 10th gear by the time you got to my house, the fourth house down the hill, and to never touch your brakes all the way down. And the reason we wanted to do this is because we thought if we pedaled hard enough, we could build up enough friction on our sprockets that we could set our chains on fire. You've been there, right? I know you have. I know that some of you listening have taken that ride down the big hill on your bike, and others of you listening are right this very second thinking, set my chain on fire? I wonder if that would work. And your subconscious is already making a plan to grab your bike out of the garage as soon as this episode of The Appleseed is over. So if you're the kind of kid who jumped off the roof holding a sheet by the corners to see if the air would catch you like a parachute, if you're the kid who put on roller skates and then pressed the trigger on a fire extinguisher to see if it would propel you across the patio, if you're the kid who listened to our producer Brian Tanner talk about a fireworks war in season two, to episode 20 of the show and thought fireworks war what could go wrong and especially if you did any of that in order to impress the object of your affections well then this is for sure an episode for you but while there's plenty of ridiculous daring do in this episode of the apple seed and some of it is rather heroic i gotta tip you off about that bill lepp story i told you about as much as the story is about bikes it's also kind of a love story no kidding you'll see and though the story made me laugh it's also kind of got me right in that place where i remember doing crazy things for love when i was a little kid elementary school days those are the days when a lot of amazing things happen. You're learning to read, you're learning to work and play with other people, and you're making your first baby steps into handling social situations, like how to navigate interactions with people you not only like, but who you like-like. It's tricky, and I was taken back to those days by Bill's story, and maybe amid the reckless hilarity of this tale, you'll be taken someplace like that, too. In any case, let's get there, shall we? Here's Bill Lepp with a story he calls Firebike, recorded live in the Appleseed studio before our terrific studio audience. Thank you very much. Uh, I grew up on a hill called Weberwood Hill in some of my stories. And... <laughs> Weberwood Hill was about a mile from the top of Weberwood Hill to the bottom of Weberwood Hill. And the first third of the hill was almost straight up and down. And then it sort of flattened out a little bit at Claired Circle. And then the top part of the hill was maybe even more straight up and down than the bottom third of the hill. And at the bottom of the hill, there was a curve that when I was a child, we would have called, well, we did call, Dead Man's Curve. But now we know that children are much too sensitive for that sort of language. <laughs> so now we would call it something like wicked timeout curve. And <laughs> if you miss that curve, you went off the road and there were about 10 trees and then a cliff that was about 14,000 feet. And at the bottom of that cliff, there was a pool of inky black liquid. And our parents told us never to touch that liquid. They said if we touched that liquid, that it was so polluted that it would eat the flesh off of our bodies. And then they told us to never go swimming in it because if we went swimming in it, we would wake the mer creatures, the mermaids and mermen that lived at the bottom, and they would swim to the surface and eat the flesh off of our body. We thought, 
how can they eat the flesh off of our bodies if the liquid has already burned it off? But we just wrote it off as the stupid sort of thing that adults say. And so anyway, we were sitting at the top of Weberwood Hill. We were on our bicycles. We were getting ready to ride our bicycles down Weberwood Hill. And the goal was to pedal the entire way down, to be in 10th gear by the time you got to my house, the fourth house down the hill, and to never touch your brakes all the way down. And the reason we wanted to do this is because we thought if we pedaled hard enough, we could build up enough friction on our sprockets that we could set our chains on fire. <laughs> And the reason we thought we could set our chains on fire is because Nora said we could. Now, Nora was a girl in our neighborhood. She was the smartest girl in the neighborhood. She was the funniest girl in the neighborhood. She was the prettiest girl in the neighborhood. And we were right at that age where boys start to think to themselves, well, if girls have cooties, maybe cooties aren't such a bad thing to have. <laughs> So when Nora said stuff like, if you pedal hard enough, you can set your chains on fire, all the boys in the neighborhood were like, uh-huh, Nora, you're pretty. We'll do it. <laughs> Which is not something boys outgrow. And so... There we were, getting ready to ride our bikes down the hill. And now, to be totally honest, I didn't want to set my chain on fire. I just wanted to know the kid who set his chain on fire. Because when I was growing up, whenever I was about to do something stupid, my dad would run in the room and he'd be like, no, 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 never try and cut glass with scissors. Dan Carlisle tried to cut glass with scissors. The glass broke, he cut his hand off. He was never the same afterwards. Our dad would say, no, 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 never tie your sled to a moving car. <laughs> Dan Carlisle tied his sled to a moving car. The car stopped, Dan didn't, he hit his head, he was never the same afterwards. Her dad would say, no, 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 never put a slug in your ear. <laughs> Dan Carlisle put a slug in his ear, ate his brain, he was never the same afterwards. Now, I can never follow the chronology of poor Dan's life, but I know he was never the same afterwards. <laughs> So I didn't want to set my chain on fire. I just wanted to know the kid who set his chain on fire. And my chief candidate was a guy named Elmore Lofink. Now here's what you have to know about Elmore. Elmore played t-ball for two years. You understand t-ball, right? There's a stand, it's maybe two and a half feet tall, little piece of rubber on top, you put the baseball on top of that, and then you come up and you swing. The ball is not moving. It's not going 100 miles an hour, it's not sliding, it's not corkscrewing, it's not curving, it's just sitting there. Two years, Elmore played t-ball, never got a hit. <laughs> he went over the ball, the little rubber thing under the ball, he sent that over the second baseman's head on several occasions, but the ball just went thunk. And I have to say that when I took my children to, to play t-ball, you know, the coach was there and the coach was like, okay, um, there's no outs, everybody gets to hit, and uh, we don't keep score. And I said to my children, uh, when I played t-ball, there were three outs. Not everybody got to hit. And if you made it the first base and then second base and then third base and then home, we called that a run and somebody made a mark in a book. And at the end of the game, we counted up those marks and the team that had the most runs, we called them the winner. <laughs> and I said to my children, remember, if nobody wins, everybody's a loser. But anyway... <laughs> Elmore had graduated from the, from the baseball arts and had gone into the bicycling arts. And Elmore was set on setting his chain on fire. Uh, of all the kids in the neighborhood who wanted to set his chain on fire, Elmore most wanted to set his chain on fire. Because of all the kids in the neighborhood that had a crush on Nora, Elmore had the biggest crush on Nora. Elmore wanted to date Nora. He wanted to serenade Nora. He wanted to write her love poems like, Nora... Nora, how I adore ya. <laughs> you throw a little scat in there, that'll really swing, man. Um, you know, he wanted to marry Nora, have a thousand children with Nora, and live the rest of his life with Nora. And Nora did not feel the same way about Elmore. Nora thought if she had to spend the rest of her life with Elmore, maybe they could be neighbors if there were a couple of houses in between. But Elmore was sure that if he could set his chain on fire, he could win Nora's heart. So Nora said, go, and we started off down the hill. Now, young people, this is going to shock you, but we were not wearing safety gear. 
When I was a kid, only four kinds of people wore safety gear. Firemen, construction workers, professional football players, and astronauts. If your job did not include running into a burning building, having an I-beam dropped on your head, purposely running into another human being, or re-entering the atmosphere. If you wore safety gear, you were sort of a wimp, and that's all there was to it. Plus... We didn't need safety gear because we had something kids don't have now. We had something called tough skin blue jeans. <laughs> tough skin blue jeans were made by the Sears Roebuck Corporation. They were made from DuPont Tribond 490 polyester. They had reinforced knees. The sales slogan was, your children will outgrow them before they wear them out. You couldn't bend your knees when you were wearing a pair of tough skins. Everybody walked around the neighborhood like they had just peed their pants. Um, so... And they were bulletproof. You could be going down the highway at 80 miles an hour, six kids in the back of a pickup truck. Your dad hits a bump, one kid goes flying out, hits the asphalt. That child would be fine. <laughs> they would just slide down the highway. So long as they just kept from their waist to their ankles on the highway, they would be fine. The only thing that could go wrong is if you had one of these little metal rivets and sparks started to come out. <laughs> if you were beside a tanker truck that was leaking, kaboom. Well, you would be fine. No, that's not true. You wouldn't be fine. You would be gone from the waist up and the ankles down. But anything covered by your tough skins would be fine. And so, anyway, I was putting my daughter on that little seat on the back of my bicycle one time when she was little, so I put her helmet on and her elbow pads and her knee pads and her shin guards and her little gloves and her Kevlar vest. And I put her on the seat and I was getting on the seat myself and I went to swing my leg over and bam, I kicked her right in the face. The only part of her body I could have hurt her. Uh, not, not on purpose, you understand. And that didn't really happen to me. <laughs> I read that in Reader's Digest, but I thought it was funny. And uh, so I stole it. And that, children, is how you cite a source. So... <laughs> We were going down the hill, paddling as fast as we could. I was in 10th gear. Elmore was right beside me. He was in 10th gear. Already other kids were chickening out. We were pedaling as hard as we could, and I was trying to remember front brake, back brake, front brake, back brake. Because if you're going down a hill like this and you hit your front brake, you're just going to cartwheel. And, and I was looking for dogs. I'll tell you why I was looking for dogs. Because my dad told me that the bicycle tires on those bikes were so thin that if you hit a dog... Now, here's the thing, again, for the young people. You've probably probably in your life had an adult say something to you where you thought to yourself, I know that adult is trying to communicate useful information to me, but what that adult just said is the single most moronic thing I have ever heard in my life. And I'll tell you what happens. We used to be smart. We used to be young, and then we grew up. We didn't mean to. It just happens. And so we'll be standing there, and we'll get an idea. It'll kind of bloom in our head like a tulip, and it'll be like, I am a good idea. <laughs> Find a young person, share me with a young person. So we go and we find a young person and the idea's up there and it's like, good idea, good idea. And it comes through our head and out our mouth, good idea. And it gets halfway between our mouth and your ears and it looks back at us and it goes, dumb, dumb, dumb. So my dad said to me, you have to watch out on those bicycles because those tires are so thin that if you hit a dog, you will cut the dog in half. And I know my dad meant, be careful, don't hit a dog. But as soon as he said that, all I could think was, I want to hit a dog. <laughs> and it's not that I don't love dogs, you know, but maybe it could be like a rabid dog, like an Atticus Fitch sort of thing, you know, read a book. And dad meant if you hit a dog in the side, you'd cut it in half. I wanted to hit a dog in the nose, just see if I could split it right down the middle. So going down the hill, pedaling as fast as we could. Now, Nora was a little bit behind us. Nora couldn't set her chain on fire because when Nora was born, we never knew why, but her legs had never worked. She'd been in a wheelchair her entire life, but she was the kind of kid that when she said to her parents, I am going to ride my wheelchair down the hill, they did not say, oh gosh, Nora, I think that would be a bad idea because they'd known her her whole life and they knew they, she was going to do it anyway. So they said things like, oh Lordy, we better take a welding class. And so... <laughs> 
They had welded her this wheelchair out of steel pipes. It was like the inside of a NASCAR race car. It had a steering wheel and a seat with a 27-point harness system. It had big, fat off-road tires. It had a plexiglass windshield nets on the side. It had a handbrake. And because she couldn't set her chain on fire, she just had lengths of chain hanging out from behind her wheelchair that would slap into the ground. And great plumes of sparks would come up. So we're going down the hill. We got to Claridge Circle where everything sort of flattened out and more kids are chickening out till we get to the top of the last part of the hill and it was just myself and Elmore left side by side. Nora was a little bit behind us and I could smell hot metal like when you're standing next to an old radiator or a car that's just been turned off and I looked down to see if my chain was on fire. My sprocket wasn't even red but I could still smell hot metal so I looked over at Elmore's bicycle and his sprocket was glowing bright red and there were heat waves shimmering off of it bouncing off his tough skins going up into the sky burning a hole in the ozone layer and then <laughs> whoosh 80 feet of flame shot out from behind Elmore's bicycle and he was so excited he was screaming I'm on fire I'm on fire and he turned and he said Nora I'm on fire for you and the symbolism was lost on us but there it was <laughs> We'd done it. We'd set our chains on fire. Notice how I take credit. And so I started to break. And I was back, break, back, break, front break. And Elmore was back, break, back, break, front break. And then Nora shot in between us, going 704 miles an hour. Something had gone wrong with her brakes. She couldn't stop. There was no way she was going to make it around wicked timeout curve. She was going to go off the road, through the trees, into the end of the pool. I didn't want that to happen, but I didn't know what to do. And then Elmore did the bravest thing I've ever seen. He let go of his brakes, and he started to pedal as hard as I could. And I wanted to know what was going to happen, so I let go of my brakes, and I started to pedal as hard as I could. And Elmore, just before Nora... When all that separated Nora from certain doom was the thin white line on the edge of the road, Elmore whipped in front of her on his bicycle, and he grabbed his front brake as hard as he could. He stood his bicycle up on its front wheel, wiggled his hips, spun his bicycle around in a great 360-degree arc, and his back tire hit the front of Nora's wheelchair and sent it rolling back up the hill. Here was a child who could not hit a baseball. Sitting stationary in front of him on a windless afternoon who had just rotated his burning bicycle to knock a wheelchair up the hill. And I jumped off my bicycle and grabbed the back of Nora's wheelchair and kind of ran it to a stop. And Elmore jumped off his bicycle and we stood there watching Elmore's bicycle just melt <laughs> into the road. We were breathing the sweet asphalt fumes. <laughs> which I think goes on to explain a few things. And <laughs> when it was all gone, when there was nothing left but some aluminum ash and some bubbles in the asphalt, when it was all gone, Nora turned to Elmore and she said to Elmore in that voice that only girls can use, and I caution young women who are just discovering this voice, please use it for the powers of good. <laughs> Because it is a voice that girls can use, females can use, that can make boys do anything. And Nora looked at Elmore, and she had a twinkle in her eye. And she said, in that tone of voice, she said, Elmore, you can push me back up the hill. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Bill Lepp with a story called Firebike. And before we played the story for you, I mentioned that I thought it was really, more than anything, a love story. You can see why, right? I even mentioned that the story took me back to elementary school, back to the days when we were all making our very first experiments with reaching out to people we liked. And by liked, I mean like-liked. It was the time, for example, when we made valentines for people and had to distinguish somehow between what we gave to people who were only classmates and what we gave to people for whom we felt actual affection. It was the time when you might tactfully find yourself eating lunch at a table that wasn't the traditional table filled with your friends. You might have, oh, I don't know, stalled long enough that there weren't any seats left at that table, but not long enough that there wasn't one seat at the table where someone you liked was sitting. And, oh, well, if I have to, you might have said, and sat down. 
only once in a while, mind you. Well, we're going to chat more about our experience with this story, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Brian and Heather, our producers around the desk, for a little talk back. I wonder where this story took them. We'll find out on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. enjoyed a story from Bill Lepp, the West Virginia storyteller who told a tale about trying to light your bike chains on fire. <laughs> and of course, we for got a to, girl, for a girl. That's right. <laughs> and uh, it's my pleasure to have around the desk with me, our producers, Dr. Brian Tanner, Dr. Heather Bigley. Guys, thanks for joining me. Hello. Hey, good to be here. So uh, 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 bike stories, you have bike stories? Were bicycles part of your childhood? Yes, definitely. We lived in rural Maryland, and uh, my sister and I, uh, I can remember the Christmases we got bikes. Yeah. We got the, you know, the small bike that didn't have, you know, trainers on it anymore. And then I remember the Christmas we got the 10 speeds. Yeah. So exciting. It meant being able to escape, right? Yeah. Um, And here Bill talks about like, oh, your parents saying, oh, go away. And um, yes, that was very much of our experience. Like, why are you in this house? I don't want to see you. Go away. And we would like, you know, I can be, I remember being 10 and we would just like, you know, bike for miles and miles and miles and miles um, because there was a candy store somewhere. Somewhere. And we were going to find it. That's and right. spend all our quarters there. So. You, d- you didn't even need a GPS. You could just nope. lick your finger, hold it up in the air. <laughs> Sugar. And head toward the candy store. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Brian, did you have a bike when you were a kid? Oh, yeah. I rode my bike everywhere. Yeah. Loved it. And it's fun for me now that I have kids yeah. that can ride bikes and can go a good distance yeah. where we can, you know— Ride out to the Dairy Queen and back, you know, five miles or something. But it just it it gives you such a sense of independence. Yeah. yeah, you know, you're kind of bound to the same couple blocks around your house. But then once you can get on a bike, your radius just increases so much, yeah. and you can get to school, you can get to your friend's house. Yeah. It just gives you so much more independence. Yeah. and it's fun to see my kids discovering that. I think this story is so interesting because it provides you with three people to be in the story. Mm-hmm. Like you can listen to it and say, "Who am?" I? Which of these characters am I? And I have to say, I was never Nora. Uh, I was never the girl who any, I was either a little sister or a big sister. And that, those are the, that's where I fit in the pantheon of female uh, archetypes. Um, <laughs> and I was never the kid who risked it all. Right. But I so identify with the storyteller who's like, I want to see what's happening, but yeah. I'm not going to be the kid who, like, saves the girl. I'll just right. be the one who tells you about the girl being saved, right? I want to be part of the project. I, yeah. was, I was there. Yeah. I saw it happen. I saw yeah. it all, um, and I'm in this safer place yeah. because I'm not doing the risking. Um so I, I very much identified with that character. Like, yeah, I want to be along for the ride, literally. Yeah. Uh, but I don't need my I don't need anything to catch on fire to be happy about it. Right? Yeah. You know, it reminded me of my neighbors growing up. We also grew up on a very very steep hill. Yeah. It was like eighteen degree grade or something, yeah. which. If you could see my hand, it's like almost straight up and down, you know, (laughs) like we couldn't drive up that hill whenever there was any snow on it. We had to go around a long back way because that hill was so long. And my next door neighbors, the Brunsons, were just daredevils. They go flying down that hill on their bikes. And I was always the one like, you know, just squeezing my brakes the whole time. (laughs) But but this, I, I really identified with the desire to just kind of like please people Hmm. by going along with their stunts. You know, the Brunsons, one time they talked me into pushing our trampoline close to the roof of my house and jumping (laughs) off... And, and, you know, it's like a two-story yeah, thing. Yeah. It's like, it's quite a drop. That's you know? an America's Funniest Videos yeah. waiting to happen. <laughs> and to make it a little bit safer, we piled it up with, like, blankets and sleeping bags and stuff like that. So you wouldn't, <laughs> it would absorb some of the shock when yeah. you land. Yeah. 
But man, that really freaked me out. But it was just like, I got to prove to these guys that I'm as brave as them. You know, and they were doing backflips off my, oh my roof gosh. and everything. Wow. But I, I would just very daintily, you know, jump off <laughs> yeah. the, the safest way that I could. But And when my mom came home unexpectedly one time, she she put an end to that whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> and like, you were probably grateful. Yeah, yeah, in a way, it was just like I proved my bravery. Yes, everybody yeah. knows. Everybody in the neighborhood saw. Right, and then there was that moment when I you could say, "Oh, dang, guys, yeah, gosh, we can't Mom. do it again." <laughs> I was about to do a backflip. Yeah, <laughs> I was thinking about this idea of the first crush, and uh, I, f- you know, I remember being in kindergarten, so I feel like I was a lot younger. Than these kids, um, and uh, having this emotion for this other kid, and not knowing really what it was until really like I saw a TV show hmm. that like could categorize it for me. Sure, but yeah, just thinking of that kid that I just always wanted to stand right next to him, and yeah. I just thought he's the smartest, funniest one. Hmm. And I, I don't. I mean, now I, I'm like, yeah, I guess that was a crush. But I'm also like, maybe I just wanted to be next to the smart, funny guy. Yeah. yeah. Which has always been me, right? Like, mm-hmm. you should meet my husband. <laughs> Your smart, funny husband. Yeah, the smartest, funny one. <laughs> funniest one. So we've got chains on fire in this story. <laughs> but we've also got these kind of, these sort of heroic sort of steps into these right. kind of relationship experiments that frankly were kind of moving to me, you know? Mm-hmm. So... Well, of course, they brought back memories for me that I'd like to share as today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. For a tiny little period of time, when I was eight years old, my little brother Joe had a crush on Jenny Wilde, who lived a couple of houses up the street. Joe was six. Jenny was seven. Jenny was our pal. We had a lot of adventures together as neighborhood playmates like you do. But my brother decided, at least for a moment, that his heart burned with a kind of love for Jenny Wilde that he wanted to do something about. And so he set about the writing of a love song, a song that he would march up to her house, knock on her door, and sing to her. It all went exactly according to plan. Six-year-old Joe knocked on Jenny Wilde's door, and she answered it. And with all the romantic sincerity in the whole world, Joe closed his eyes, opened his mouth, and sang the song he had written just for this moment. I love you, I'll marry you, I love you, I'll marry you, I love you, I'll marry you. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Well, the song wasn't going to win any Grammys, for sure. But man, for sheer straightforward romantic feeling, I mean, have you ever heard anything like it? Well, Jenny Wilde was not won over by the song in the end. But Joe, I think, might have been changed by it. He became a person who was willing to go big or go home, to lay it all on the line, to risk much. And that's gotten him pretty far in life. Me... I was just a spectator to that tiny love story, guy on the sidelines. Maybe I avoided some hurt by being more guarded with my heart, and I was a lot more guarded even as an eight-year-old kid. But gosh, I admired my little brother for the sheer chutzpah. I mean, if you're not the kind of person who would sing I love you, I'll marry you on Jenny Wilde's doorstep, don't you at least wonder what your life would be like if you were that kind of person, even if in the end Jenny Wilde wasn't buying it. Anyway, scroll forward now a handful of years, and when you stop scrolling, I'm a grown-up, but just barely. It's before I settle down in a career or start a family, and I'm working for a while as a missionary in Argentina. It's pretty rewarding work, but it's also tough work. I'm not much more than a kid, really. I have a lot of responsibility. I'm far from a lot of the people I love most. And because the work doesn't often deal in tangibles like dollars and cents, it's sometimes tough to know when I'm doing a good job. And amid the rewarding times come some discouraging times. And I survive a lot of those discouraging times 
writing letters back and forth with my dad. This is, if you can believe it, before most folks have access to email, way before cell phones are common. So these letters are written on actual sheets of paper placed into envelopes sent across the sea. I got to say that I still have all those letters from my dad. They're an important part of my story. And there's one letter that I kind of keep close. I don't know how dad was feeling when he wrote the letter. I saw it three weeks after he had written it. That was the turnaround time for letters sent across the sea. Me, I was having one of those discouraging moments when the letter arrived. In any case, in the letter, and I know he may have simply sensed I might need a pick-me-up, My dad spoke with admiration of the kind of person who, as a person of faith, didn't want to simply cheer from the sidelines, but instead wanted to get out on a field and play. Now, he was talking about the work I was doing as a missionary, and, you know, it did make me feel better. And though dad's message was shared with a specific purpose for a specific activity at a specific time of my life, the sentiment in the letter continues to speak to me, even though I'm not doing that particular work anymore. It might be that the letter was designed to turn my thoughts to biblical heroes, folks like Joseph in Egypt or King David or Joshua who fought the Battle of Jericho, God's ancient champions who refused to sit on the sidelines but who instead risked much and lived lives, the stories of which we are still telling to each other in wonder. But the truth is, when I read my dad's letter, someone else came to mind and comes to mind still as I think about it today. It's my little brother, Joe, at six years old, standing on Jenny Wilde's front porch, not willing merely to deal with the biggest feeling in his little life by loving Jenny from afar or even to write a song for her to keep in his heart. No, Joe was ringing her doorbell and opening his mouth to sing the dang thing, come what may. (laughs) Well, when we were kids, we tried things that laid the foundations for the kinds of adults we would be. And we stumbled from time to time, for sure. Oh, how we stumbled. But sometimes, even the little moments in which we found ourselves moving courageously forward in our little kid way can find us again in memory, even when we're grown-ups. They can find us and remind us, even when it's scary, that there's a special kind of reward that comes with risking much. A reward that can't be had in simply cheering from the sidelines. Sometimes we remember that, and we manage to find the courage to open our mouths and sing our song, whatever it may be. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. A pleasure to sit around the desk with Heather and Brian and talk about Bill's fire bike story. Guys, thanks so much for being with me. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And, of course, we always hope the stories we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts that you can share around the kitchen table or the living room with the people you love. So if you ever had an experience with a speeding bike or a big hill or a dangerous childhood adventure with friends or if you had a childhood crush or if you ever wrote a song to share with someone to tell them how you feel, well... Open your mouth. Those stories are worth sharing. That kind of storytelling can help you develop a culture unique to your family. Even the lighthearted sharing of stories can be the doorway into important conversations. Coming up in a moment, it's back to the Appleseed Performance Studio for a look at a favorite childhood story of Heather's. I'm Sam Payne. This hour began with a story by Bill Lepp called Firebike, a rollicking tale that included a handful of kids, a handful of wheeled human-powered vehicles, and a deadly hill. Kids doing impossible stunts, and all in the name of, well, 
love. The tradition of kids and crazy stunts has a long and glorious history in real life. If you were a kid and had a bike or a pair of roller skates, you can probably attest to that. But also in literature. And the kids in Bill's story brought to mind for us another little team of kids from a series of books written in the 1940s. At their center, a red-headed heroine named Pippi, Pippi Longstocking. Heather Bigley, our producer, prepared for you a kind of introduction to Pippi Longstocking and her adventures, and we invited a few of our actor friends to help us make that introduction. We recorded it in front of our terrific studio audience, and we even had them get in on the act, helping us create a few sound effects, especially the sound of a wild classroom and the sound of a crowd surrounding a daring fire rescue. It's all part of the adventure. You'll love it, but we won't. Don't say more. We'll leave that to Heather. Here she is, along with actors Ellie Mellon, Freya Jorgensen, Darcy Ramirez, and Parley Lambert on The Appleseed. I was a red-headed stepchild. I didn't hear that appellation until I was an adult. But I had red hair, and my mother remarried when I was four. I was also skinny and freckled and small and cried easily, whether from fear or being overwhelmed or sadness. Otherwise, I was mostly silent, comfortable under beds and in closets, up in a tree or the attic. Imagine this child finding a version of herself in books, smart strong, red-headed girls who spoke out, spoke loud, and even if they were afraid, were brave enough to try and do. Swedish author Astrid Lindgren's Pippi Longstocking was one of these book dwellers, a singular solitary child with a bag of gold coins and impossible strength who said to herself and anyone who might be listening, Don't worry, I can always look after myself. Lindgren created the story in 1941 for her daughter Karen while she was sick at home from school. Karen even named the redhead herself. Later, Karen's friends and cousins became acquainted with Pippi's adventures, and Lindgren eventually wrote up the stories and entered them into a 1945 children's literature competition where Pippi placed first. What drew me in part to Pippi was her travels. Pippi had stories from Egypt, India, the Congo. In Brazil, everyone walks around with egg in their hair, and nobody is bald there either. Except <laughs> once there was this old man who was so foolish that he ate up all his eggs instead of smearing them on his hair. And of course, he went bald. Whenever he went out on the street, he caused such an emotion that the police cars had to be called. Though perhaps all her stories weren't strictly true. <laughs> when adults wanted to make Pippi do something she didn't like, she could protect herself through her physical agility. She could save her friends from danger and boredom, accompanied by Mr. Nielsen, the dapper monkey, and her unnamed horse. While Pippi mystified the adults around her, she delighted her neighbors Tom and Annika so much that in this scene, they wished to invite her to school as they walk home from class. Just think how much fun we could have together when she walked home from school. And on the way there. And in math class. And during lunch. That's sad that Pippi doesn't go to school, really. Really sad. We should convince her to start. For her, really. <laughs> Tommy and Annika left themselves in the Villa Vacula and find Pippi in the kitchen surrounded by ginger cookies all over the floor. Mr. Nilsson, help me pick up all these cookies off the floor. Pippi, if you only knew how fun it is at school, I'd go crazy if I weren't allowed to go. <laughs> First we roll them out on the floor, and then we cut them with the cutters, and then we put them on the sheet with the spatula, and then we bake them, and then we eat them. And our teacher is wonderfully nice. <laughs> Well, if we leave them on the floor, Mr. Nilsson, after cutting them out, without baking them, they won't be ginger snaps, they'll be ginger squishes. And you only have to be there until 2 o'clock. And you get summer vacation, and Christmas vacation, and, and Easter wait, that's vacation. that's not fair! Well, it's absolutely unfair, and I don't intend to put up with this. With what? In four months, it'll be Christmas, and then you'll have a holiday, but what about me? What do I get? No Christmas vacation? Not even a little Christmas vacation? Something has to change. Tomorrow, 
I'm going to school. <laughs> well, we, we, we'll start at 8 and we can come by. 8 a.m.? 8 a.m.? Uh, maybe 10, 10.30? Let's see, there's the ginger snaps to bake and Mr. Nilsson's singing lesson and the horse needs to be brushed and his tail braided if we are to appear in public. Plus, I should count my gold coins and organize the necklaces in the cupboard and... But Pippi arrives at school the next day at exactly 10 a.m. because she races to school at a full gallop into the playground, <laughs> leaping from the horse, ties the horse to a tree, sprints into the school, flings open the classroom door, and... Hello, everybody! Am I in time for pleasification? Welcome to school, Pippi. Tommy and Annika told me you would join us today. I hope you'll be happy here and learn a great deal. And get a Christmas vacation. Fair is fair, after all. Pippi, here's your math book and our reading book. And what's your full name so I can register you? <clears throat> Pippi Lotta, Comestibles, Window Shade, Curly Mint, Ephraim's daughter, Longstocking. The daughter of Captain Ephraim Longstocking, formerly the terror of the high seas, now king of the islands. We'll just call you Pippi. Uh, now, we're going to do a little diagnostic test, and we'll start with arithmetic. Now, Pippi, what's seven plus five? <laughs> well, if you don't know the answer yourself, I have no intention of telling you. Pippi, you must treat me respectfully and not talk back in school. And you're supposed to address me as ma'am. Please forgive me. I didn't know that. I won't do it again, <laughs> ma'am. <laughs> Thank you. Seven plus five equals twelve. You see, you knew it all along. Why did you ask me? <laughs> Ma'am. Let's try again. What is eight plus four? About sixty-seven or so, ma'am. Eight plus four equals twelve. Well, now wait a minute, ma'am. That's going too far. You just told me, ma'am, that seven plus five equals twelve, ma'am. I should think, ma'am, there have to be some rules, ma'am, especially in a school. Besides, ma'am, if you enjoy these silly little questions, ma'am, maybe, ma'am, you should sit by yourself in the corner, ma'am, and leave us in place so we can play tag. Ma'am. Tommy! Can you give me the correct answer to this next problem? If Lisa has seven apples and Axel has nine apples, how many apples do they have all together? What I, I want to know is if Lisa has a stomach ache and Axel has an even worse stomach ache, whose fault is it? And where did they swipe the apples from? Annika, maybe you can answer this. If Gustav went on a school outing with his classmates and he left with one krona and returned home with seven ore, how much money did he spend? And did he buy lemonade with his money and wash behind his ears properly before he left home? Perhaps we should try reading. Uh, Pippi, open your reading book to page seven. Uh, um. <laughs> here, Pippi, is page seven. Here is a picture of a snake. What letter does the word snake start with? Uh... Speaking of snakes, oh. <laughs> I'll never forget the time that I wrestled a giant snake in India. It was the most horrible snake you can imagine. Forty feet long and angry as a wasp, and every day he ate five grown-ups. <laughs> One day, he wanted to eat me for dessert, and he wrapped himself around me. Squee! But I told him, I have sailed the seven seas, and I bonked him on the head. Bam! And then he hissed, so I hit him again, bam, and poof, he died. <laughs> Snake begins with S. So that's the letter S. Amazing, ma'am. How about we spend some time drawing? Uh, children, go to the art corner and pick up paper and crayons and take back to your desk and, and then draw your favorite animal. Pippi, why are you drawing on the floor? Well, I couldn't get my horse on that tiny scrap of paper, ma'am. Right now I'm drawing his front legs, but when I get to the tail, I'll probably have to go out into the hallway. Children, why don't you take a ten-minute break on the playground while I talk to Pippi? You should all play tag! Pippi. You know what, ma'am? It was fun to come here and see what school is, but I think I'll just have to make do without a Christmas vacation. There are too many apples and snakes and things like that. It makes my head spin. I hope you're not disappointed, ma'am. I am disappointed, Pippi, mainly in your behavior. You act like someone who doesn't want to be in school. Have I behaved badly, ma'am? I didn't know. 
You must understand, ma'am, that if a girl's mama is an angel and her papa is king of the islands, and if she herself has spent her whole life sailing the seas, then she doesn't know how to behave at school among all these apples and snakes. Perhaps, Pippi, coming to school more would help you learn how to behave here? I'm going to go. Thanks so much. Have a lovely day. As an adult, I too worry over Pippi, perhaps because I'm worried about the little girl reading Pippi under her bed. What as a child I saw as creative and unique, today I see as attempts to survive in a world she doesn't always know how to navigate. Pippi doesn't understand how to behave in her little Swedish town because no one has taught her how to treat teachers or what the benefit of math is or how often she should bathe and how lonely and sad she must be without a family to love and guide her. Her tall tales are another way to keep from admitting how unprepared she is for the world she lives in. But this is why, as a child, I loved Pippi, even if, like me, she felt alone and unprepared, she still blustered through the best she could and even ended up saving the day once or twice. I don't know what that is, Mr. Nilsson. It sounds like a parade. Let's go and see. Pippi saddles her horse and takes Mr. Nilsson with her into town. Mr. Nilsson, maybe we should get a fire truck. It's so red and loud. And look at that building on fire. The sparks are beautiful. There's Tommy and Annika. Tommy! Annika! Why are those boys crying? Don't they like the fire? Wouldn't you be screaming if you were up at the top of a building and couldn't get down? Oh, I never scream. But if they want to come down, why isn't anyone helping them? It's impossible, that's why. The building is four stories tall and the fire has already started in the stairway. Someone bring me a rope! How will that help? I learned a thing or two at sea. Mr. Nilsson will take the rope to the top of the tree next to the building, and I... I will grab this plank from the house that's being repaired here on the corner and climb the rope and have the children walk the plank, Armity back to the tree, and then we'll swing down to the ground again. Safe and sound. There's nothing safe or sound about that. Don't worry. I can always look after myself. She's at the top of the tree. She's walking the plank. It's just like the circus. She has my boys in each arm. She might really do it. Oh, here comes one of the boys. That was amazing. I never knew fires could be so fun. Three cheers for Bibby Longstocking. Long may she live. Hurrah! 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 Hurrah for Pippi Longstocking. Long may she live in many translations around the world so little girls everywhere, redheaded or not, see her bravery and strength and learn to find their own. An adventure with the somewhat unconventional and superhumanly strong Pippi Longstocking, the swashbuckling kid character created by Astrid Lindgren in 1945 when her daughter asked for a get-well story during a time home from school. Well, it's an hour of the apple seed that began with a rollicking tale called Firebike, told for you by Bill Lepp and recorded live in the Appleseed studio. And I know we said that we felt like the story was actually a love story more than anything else. And even that it brought to mind some of our own little kid love stories, including the story of my brother writing a song for Jenny Wilde, essentially the girl next door. But maybe, just maybe, Bill's story didn't bring to mind memories of love stories. Maybe, just maybe, when you hear that story, you're taken back to memories of bikes. Bikes, a ticket to freedom for every kid who had one. And maybe you're even thinking of a bike of your own. 
My first bike was a little yellow Royce Union with fenders and tall chrome handlebars and a long black banana seat. I've talked about it before. I was seven when I got that bike, and I had it until sixth grade. Over the years, I worked on it. I took off the fenders. I replaced the banana seat with a little racing saddle. I replaced the swooping chrome handlebars with black BMX handlebars. And all these changes were brought on by the fact that as happy as I was to have a bike at all, I wanted a bike that could stand the rigors of the gravel pits. Land developers had dug an enormous pit out among the scrub oak on the west end of our small town and then left it. It was full of ridges and moguls and long, flat stretches where the neighborhood kids could ride. And there was a hill that led from the rim of the pits down a long, steep, curving trail to the pit floor. And that long descent was only one bike wide. So kids were always lined up, six or seven of them, waiting their turn to make that long fall. It was like a roller coaster. And it meant that when you made that drop, it was under the scrutiny of every kid there. Everyone watched everyone else. Well, some kids would take that ride, and they'd skid to a stop at the bottom, and then they'd push their bikes back to the top and get back in line, and they'd do it again. But the big kids and the bravest little kids did the other thing. They'd rocket down that hill and shoot like an arrow over the flat bottom of the pit and over a wide, arcing curve up an enormous berm that we called Half Moon and then back down into the pit. Now, that berm was steep enough that the trip up and then the loop back down again had you horizontal for a few seconds, riding on a wall, essentially, defying gravity, flying. And if you could do it and survive... You were moving fast enough that with a little pedaling, your bike would simply carry you back out across the flat bottom of the pit and back up to its rim to the beginning of the trail. You'd be back in line. No climbing, no getting off your bike at all. Riding half moon was a rite of passage for every kid in the neighborhood. And I got to tell you, it took me a long time, but eventually... I had to do it. Under the eyes of all my friends, I leaned into that long fall with the pedals blazing and shot out across the straightaway. And then my stomach and my throat, I made that long curve up the berm and back down again. And there's a moment that I figure every kid experiences on that hill. That moment, just as the angle of the berm gets vertical, when you realize that if you go forward, you got to do the whole thing. A moment where you realize that if you push forward for a few more feet, there's no stopping. You'll have to ride the whole wall or you'll crash and die. And I don't think I'll ever forget what it was like to reach that moment and swallow my fears and go ahead. And having said that, I guess there's no escaping it, even when a story is a bike story. It's really like a love story, you know? It's been such a pleasure to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. Thanks to Bill Lepp for telling us his story, and to Ellie Mellon, Freya Jorgensen, Darcy Ramirez, and Parley Lambert for helping us bring you a bit of Pippi Longstocking. Our producers are Brian Tanner and Heather Bigley, and you can find us at byuradio.org or by Googling The Appleseed Podcast and subscribing. If you found us on the podcast, feel free to rate us and leave us a review. It helps people find the show. And, of course, you can download the BYU Radio app to listen to all the great shows produced by BYU Radio. The Appleseed is pleased and proud to be part of that family of programs. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed.